Thank you all for coming. Uh, the theme uh, is um, atoms and uh, how to image atoms and identify atoms and how to do this in uh, three dimensions. And uh, the uh, structure of the talk is uh, largely historical. Um, I will work through uh, the origins of the way uh, these atoms have been imaged uh, using field arm microscopy, how atom probe has developed. Uh, that that uh, will take up probably the first half of the talk. Then I will do a snapshot of some applications and uh, seek to round off with uh, a, a short discussion about limitations and prospects and uh, finish with um, uh, a short postscript on the, the, the role of the Oxford group um, in the global development of this area. Um, acknowledgements are many. Uh, first of all, the past and present members of the Oxford Atom Probe Group, uh, especially uh, to uh, uh, Alfred Cerezo as a, a brilliant physicist who did a lot of the instrumental work and became a very good material scientist. Uh, Terry Godfrey, who was the absolute anchor and pillar of strength in the instrument development. Uh, Chris Grosvenor, who uh, pioneered the semiconductor applications uh, for us. Uh, Paul Baggett on catalysis. Um, and uh, a special thanks to Michael Moody, who's succeeded me as uh, head of the group and who uh, I am absolutely thrilled to see as making a magnificent job of this. And, uh, I can sleep easy at night with Michael in charge, and I'm uh, delighted to, uh, uh, to have him uh, take over. Um, we have many research collaborators uh, in Oxford, especially in the chemistry department. We've had a very fruitful collaboration, and with a number of other universities, including Cambridge and Manchester, and with Rolls-Royce and National Nuclear Lab. Many international collaborators, as you can see there. And uh, funding sources, well... Um, a challenge there, we've never really had long-term secure funding. We've lived a bit from hand to mouth all down these years. Uh, but various organizations have uh, funded us as, uh, as we've gone along. Um, in terms of history, the first person to whom we must pay uh, tribute is Professor Erwin Mueller, uh, who goes down in history as the inventor originally of the field electron emission microscope in 1936. This is a needlepoint microscope. Uh, then the field iron microscope, the low temperature version, which saw atoms for the first time, was 1956. And he also uh, invented, uh, with his team, uh, the, the atom probe, which enabled the imaged atoms to be um, identified. And the title that I gave for my talk um, is actually taken uh, or derived from a quote by Erwin Mueller shortly after the invention of the uh, atom identification method, and uh, the, the first part is a, a masterpiece of understatement. Um, it appears the atom probe will become a quite useful research tool for surface chemistry and physics and metallurgy. Uh, well, for the 3D atom probes, there are now well over 60 installations in major labs around the world, and uh, the last time I looked, uh, the, the most complete bibliography, I think, is for 2011, and there were nearly 300 peer-reviewed publications on this topic uh, uh, out. So I think he was right there. But he then had a lovely touch of phrase when the atoms could be identified. He said, we can now deal much more intimately with the individual atoms we encounter since we know their names. 
which was a, 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 a nice, uh, a deft touch. Right, how do we do it then? Uh, so the, the first, we start with the principle of the field arm microscope, and as uh, I will, I think, very easiest just to use a pointer here. Um, the, the sample is uh, a needle, uh, usually metal or semiconductor, chemically or electrolytically or uh, by iron milling, produced uh, with a very sharp point, uh, less than 0.1 micron um, end radius, sometimes 10 times sharper than that. It's in a vacuum system. Uh, the needle is pointing towards a fluorescent screen. And uh, three things happen. First of all, the needle is kept very cold. It's liquid nitrogen temperatures or below. And that's to stop the atoms on the surface from running around and to give sharp pictures. Uh, secondly, a very high voltage is applied to that needle, uh, typically about 10,000 volts positive. And there is um, a memorable uh, misprint, in fact, in my DePhil thesis, which was lovingly typed by my late wife, in which she wrote, the specimen was electrically insulted <laughs> uh, to, uh, to 10,000 volts. Uh, and um, uh, the, in this vacuum chamber, there is uh, a small amount of gas, uh, typically uh, helium or neon. And with 10,000 volts applied to uh, a needle tip with, that is below 0.1 micron radius, uh, the field strength at the apex is enormous. It's uh, tens of volts per nanometer. Um, and under those conditions, any gas atom that gets close to that needle uh, is likely to become ionized. Because the tip is positive, uh, an electron is essentially sucked into the metal, leaving a positive ion outside. Uh, so there's a zone of ionization just above the tip. Positive ions are repelled away uh, towards the microscope screen where they build up an enlarged projected image of the surface from which they originate. And if the end of that needle was perfectly smooth and uniform and hemispherical, uh, then there would be uniform ionization over the surface, a uniform green or blue glow on the screen. Uh, it would be extremely boring, and we wouldn't have jobs. Um, it gets interesting when the end of that needle is not uniform, when there are little protrusions or asperities, things which stick out. Uh, and if there's a little sharp bit, uh, a sticking out bit on the needle, then locally that will be a center of ionization. And locally that will give rise to a projected bright spot um, on the screen. And the art and science in field arm microscopy is to shrink the end of that needle down to the point where you can't think of it as being a continuum anymore. It's grainy, it's made up of atoms, and the individual atoms are sufficient perturbations uh, to give rise to, to spots on the screen. Uh, that, that's the basis of, of how it works. Um, the details of the image formation. In the strong field, uh, gas atoms are polarized. They're drawn into the surface. They actually hop around over the surface. There's a critical distance about four angstroms above the surface where the ionization takes place, uh, and the gas ions head off towards the, the microscope screen. Um, it's complicated by the fact that some gas atoms remain adsorbed on the surface, but in fact, surprisingly, that doesn't affect the imaging greatly. Um, and the sort of images that one sees um, on the screen uh, decorate, of course, a, a hundred textbook covers and uh, many monographs uh, and the occasional work of art. Um, and uh, this is from uh, Paul Baggett in uh, our group. This is a, a platinum rhodium, the kind of alloy that's used as a catalyst. Uh, and this is 
uh, in this case, each single bright spot that you see in that image is the image of a single atom. Uh, now, putting this in perspective, in real life, on a pinhead, a conventional sewing pin, uh, there are approximately six million atoms in a line across a pinhead. Okay, and projected on the screen, uh, this is probably 20 or 30 pinhead's diameter. So uh, you're looking at uh, magnifications here, which are of the order of 200, 250 million, something like that. Um, now, the, the, the images, I will be the first to accept that this is an almost incomprehensible image. It looks pretty, and I can assure you the dots are atoms, but what on earth does this mean? Um, well, uh, the way to um, understand it is to build the model uh, of, of the end of a needle with a hemispherical uh, form. And in the days before computer simulation, we did this. This is, consists of 7,246 polystyrene spheres uh, neatly stacked into uh, a hemisphere. Actually, it should have been more. If you look really, really carefully, we only built a quarter of this. There's a mirror plane down there and a mirror plane at right angles. Uh, so, um, well, the locus of intersection of any plane with a sphere is always going to be a ring. Okay, so if you, if you build a model for a hemispherical uh, crystal, this is a, a 100 oriented face center cubic crystal, uh, then you build it up of a set of circular layers. Uh, and what we've done here is mark uh, the most prominent atoms, the corner or kink side atoms on that surface. So for any one uh, crystallographic pole, uh, it's going to image as a, a series of concentric rings, which is where the individual atom planes uh, intersect the surface. Uh, and the whole uh, 3D image that you saw on the previous side uh, is essentially looking down from above on that, uh, onto the, the 100 plane. Um, and uh, this is 110, this is uh, 111. Uh, this, this, these are the different crystallographic facets um, of um, a single crystal. Um, I shall interject uh, a historical item here. Um, as a graduate student, I actually built one of these microscopes. This is, was built in, in, in the inorganic chemistry laboratory, uh, and it's an all-glass uh, microscope. I had some professional help from the glass blower in producing the main vessel. Everything else I did uh, myself. Um, I burnt the nerve ends off my fingers 45 years ago, and I can still handle hot plates where other people can't. Uh, <laughs> the, the glass microscope uh, actually had a better vacuum than any stainless steel microscope subsequently. It was about 10 to the minus 13 as far as active gases were concerned. Um, the iron images were rather dim. Ions don't make much light when they hit a phosphor screen. Uh, beneath the, the screen here is a camera with an F1 lens and the fastest possible x-ray film in it. Uh, typical exposure times were three to five minutes. The longest exposure I ever took for an adsorbed layer took 30 minutes with an F1 lens open. Could only be done, uh, in the summertime, could only be done at midnight because the, even when you had the, the room blacked out, there was still too much background light. And one memorable evening, 25 minutes into a 30-minute exposure, the night watchman came around, opened the door, and switched the lights on. And, <laughs> and I don't know whether my scream or his... Uh, Yell was, was the more frightening. But anyway, uh, this, this is uh, a complete atom imaging field eye microscope built for the, uh, a princely sum of about uh, just under 2,000 pounds. Okay. Um, right. Now, uh, what can you see? I've shown you a picture of a, uh, a perfect crystal, but obviously 
um, the things which are of interest to material science are defects in crystals, and one of the important ones are, is uh, dislocations. And if there's a dislocation present which intersects the surface and has a Burgers vector um, component normal to the surface, uh, then it will produce a spiral. And you may just be able to see here, here is a, instead of a set of rings, there is a, a spiral going round and round and round. So that's where a dislocation comes out. And um, running across here, you may just be able to see a defect, but it'll be clearer if I do this and take it back. This is a grain boundary. Um, and so, uh, you know, obviously it's uh, hugely interesting to be able to see crystal defects in uh, atomic detail in a microscope of this kind. Um, the problem is that all the atoms of any kind look roughly the same. Uh, and what we really want to know about grain boundaries is what's segregated there at dislocations. We'd like to know whether there are things like cultural atmospheres and so on. So uh, this is an imaging technique, but by itself, um, it doesn't do um, analysis. But nature, for once, has been kind and forgiving to us and has given us a way to do this. And there is a process called field evaporation, which I'll show with the aid of a potential energy diagram. That's energy on one axis, distance on the other. This is the potential well for uh, an atom sitting on a metal surface uh, bound with a sublimation energy lander. Um, that's the neutral atom state. Um, it could also exist as a positive ion. Uh, that would be metastable. You wouldn't normally see that, except if you put now a, a strong field on, uh, a, a gradient of tens of volts per nanometer, uh, then this uh, positive ion state uh, is distorted, it now looks like the red line and asymptotically approaches the field line. Now in this case, we're now in an interesting position because an atom that is sitting uh, in a, its potential well there, uh, to escape, it, it no longer has to go all the way up here for, to, and re receive the sublimation energy to dissolve as a neutral. If it reaches this crossing point here, uh, it can become ionized and can actually be removed as uh, an, a charged ion. And since we have control over the field strength, we can vary uh, the slope of that black line and we can move this intersection point as close as we like to the, uh, the uh, minimum in the potential energy curve. Uh, and that process is called field evaporation. And it's quite spectacular. Even tungsten, the most refractory of metals, which doesn't melt till 3,300 centigrade, can be stripped off at enormous rates at 20 degrees Kelvin just by turning up the field. Um, and the, the, the phrase to, that describes it is field evaporation. Now, the fact that this is a very field-sensitive process uh, gave the basis for atomic um, imaging. Uh, because uh, instead of just turning up the field till the point where the atoms come off and doing that, say, by hand, if you now turn up the, the field using a pulse, uh, so it goes up in, say, a nanosecond or a picosecond, then you can localise the moment uh, when the iron is removed from the surface. Uh, so you can hold the field on the, the needle uh, at a level just below the threshold for evaporation and then momentarily either raise the voltage uh, so that atoms are suddenly stripped off or if you keep the, the potential constant, if you put a temperature pulse in, then again, you can, cause, you can tickle the atoms and just cause them to jump over that hump. Uh, so if it's sitting at maybe, say, 40 degrees Kelvin, uh, then you might want to increase the voltage by 
uh, 15 or 20 percent with a, a pulse to get it to do that. If you want to raise the temperature and it's a 40 degrees Kelvin, you've got to bring it up to about room temperature. So that it's not a, a drastic laser uh, heat. It's, it's, a, it's a little more than a tickle. and It'll knock the atoms off. But if you do this, then you know the moment when the atoms come off, the ions then are uh, accelerated through a, a, a fixed voltage, which is the voltage between the needle and the counter-electrode. Uh, they lose potential energy. If V is the total accelerating potential, E is the electronic charge, N is the number of charges on the atom. That's converted to kinetic energy, which is a half mv squared. So the, 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 the product half mv squared is fixed. Uh, and that means if the atom you've picked off is a light atom with a small mass, then its velocity will be high. Uh, if it's a heavy atom, its velocity will be low. Um, so the, the, this opens the, the way to identify the atom from time of flight. There is a, a mass spectrometry technique called time of flight mass spectrometry. And simply, you have a little racetrack between the needle. Uh, you have a, a pipe or tube. And at the end of it, you have a single particle sensitivity detector. And you measure the time that elapses between when the iron is knocked off and when it reach, reaches the detector. And if you measure that accurately enough, it tells you what the mass to charge ratio of the iron is. Um, and it was Mueller's group in, uh, at Penn State who, who first got this working. And the, 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 the early generation um, instruments um, were modified field arm microscopes. So there's the needle, uh, there's the image screen, but the image screen now has a hole through it. Typically, the image screen might be 70 millimeters across, the hole is just about 2 millimeters. Um, and because there's only an electrostatic field between the tip and the screen, it turns out that if you rotate the, the tip round, like on a goniometer stage, the image moves across the screen. You can line up the bit you're interested in over that hole. And if you now raise the voltage and pick atoms off the surface, the atoms from that selected region will fly through that hole. Uh, trajectories are independent of mass or charge uh, in a purely electrostatic field. So there's the, there's the tip where it's, where it's pulsed, that's the aperture hole, the mirror will be swung out of the way, there's a flight tube maybe a metre long, there's a detector, there's a flight time measurement system, and in those days, hang on to it, would be a microcomputer uh, and a punch system spitting out paper tape or something of that kind. Um, so that, that was the original um, atom probe, and we built one of those um, in Oxford, um, and that's... Uh, what you see, this dates uh, in Oxford, that's about 1975. And you can see a certain amount of Dexian framework and wiring, but it's a pretty robust uh, uh, structure. And I think the basic vacuum system of that cost us 10,000 pounds, and then we put a few other things onto it, so uh, it wasn't that expensive. Um, there is uh, then, um, to put this in perspective, uh, we need a little bit of history for uh, a moment. Um, the Mueller's original invention of the field arm microscope was uh, the low temperature version was, was developed at Penn State in 1956. Um, the first introduction into England uh, was in uh, 1959 uh, into uh, the place which unfortunately lost the boat race last week, but uh, 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 it was, uh, that was where it started. Uh, the... Um, Second place, which is largely forgotten, uh, was at the National Chemical Laboratory. Uh, a professor, John Stuart Anderson, uh, who was the director of that lab, uh, set up a field arm microscope uh, there in about 1961. And then he moved to Oxford, to the Oxford Chemistry in 63, and brought the technique with him. 
Uh, so that there is an independent nucleation uh, in, uh, uh, in Oxford from Cambridge. Um, and it starts in materials here in 1968. And then the first 1D atom of in Cambridge is 1970. We start really about three years later. And then the three-dimensional version uh, we do in the 1980s. Um, in terms of the origins, uh, tribute should be paid to several people. The, really the first person to pick up this in England was actually Jack Nutting, but he persuaded Alan Cottrell in Cambridge of the importance of it, um, and Cottrell backed uh, the, the, the development of the, uh, the system. Um, in Oxford, when it's the Hume Rothery lecture, I must of course mention William Hume Rothery, uh, who was a professor when I came as an undergraduate, who was a lovely man and a, a, a uh, a, a patriarchal figure in material science. But bless his heart, he was a little conservative in his uh, attitude. Um, it, it is said it took him a few years to accept the concept of dislocations after they were uh, discovered. He was a little slow into electron microscopy, and he had no interest whatever in field ion microscopy. Um, and uh, he, like every successor head of department, was, was worked very hard to try and build up student numbers when I came in 1961, uh, the, he'd got a triumph. He'd reached double figures, 10 students doing materials that year. Um, but in 63, David Brandon from the Cambridge group came over and gave a, gave a talk in Oxford about field arm microscopy. Uh, I'm glad to say this was a talk organized by the Oxford, what well, then was the Oxford Metallurgical Society. So my future career was defined uh, not so much by the university, but by the Oxford Metallurgical Materials Society. I went along to the evening presentation and, uh, in those days at the Cadena Cafe, and I heard this uh, guy from Cambridge uh, talk. I saw him show pictures of atoms, and I heard him say, we need more competition. We're on our own in, in, in Cambridge. And that fired me up. And from then on, I, I was only a second-year undergraduate there. I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I went back and talked to my tutor, and uh, he talked with Hugh Rothery. It was clear there was no way forward. Uh, for it uh, in metallurgy. Uh, but uh, later that year, uh, J.S. Anderson moved to the chemistry department. And I sat in on his third year lecture course on solid state chemistry and was absolutely amazed to see him show a field arm microscope image. Uh, so at that point, uh, I basically bailed out from metallurgy, too much to humor all disgust, because I was now down to single figures again on students. Um, and uh, I went across to, to chemistry to do my uh, part two. Um, I had a rather nervous uh, wait for uh, an interview with uh, J.S. Anderson in his secretary's uh, office, uh, late 63. Um, and uh, a very pretty girl was his secretary who uh, calmed me down and chatted to me. Uh, and that actually was Josie who became my wife. <laughs> so, so when I left chemistry, uh, I took Anderson, I not only left Anderson, I took his secretary with me. But, uh, um, anyway, uh, he, he, he forgave me and actually came to our wedding. Um, now, uh, but what had happened while I was away in chemistry was that Hugh Rothery had retired. Peter Hirsch came as, from Cambridge to head up the materials department. And he was absolutely clear uh, that the field of microscopy and everything that followed was what he wanted to do. So at that point, I was able to come back from chemistry to come home, basically, to, to metallurgy. Uh, my namesake, David Smith, joined me from Cambridge, and we, we, we set up the, uh, the, uh, the Oxford group. Um, now, moving on, um, the, the limitation, one of the limitations um, of the 
early atomwave, I think, is fairly obvious, and that is, is that pinhole aperture. Because if you feel to evaporate, ions are spraying off in all directions towards this screen, which is about 70 millimeters across. You've got something like a two millimeter hole in it. So for graduate students, this is a hard way to earn a living. For every thousand atoms, or thousand ions dissolved from the needle, one is going to go through that hole. Okay, so you, and it's destructive. You can't put the other 999 back, they've gone. Uh, so the, the early generation graduate students were uh, heroes. I don't think we ever told them how heroic they were when they were working, but uh, uh, they, 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 they did an amazing job. Um, one version was then produced by John Panitz in America. Now here is a needle again. Um, but what he's done, he's put uh, uh, actually a, a detector which is curved. It's part of a sphere. Um, and it's at the tip sits at the center of curvature here. And what this is, this is two microchannel plates with um, a phosphor screen behind. And what these, these are, are essentially arrays of electron multipliers. They're, they're microscopic size, but you feed one ion in on one side, and you get a million electrons out the other side. Uh, so if you feed an ion from one side, you get a flash of light. Uh, and what he did was to design something which could be used as a stroboscope. So what he would do, uh, these detectors could be switched on and off in a nanosecond or two. So after uh, a pulse to remove the ions, um, he would arrange that the detector was time-gated, was just switched on for a few nanoseconds after a delay time corresponding to the flight time of the species of interest. Uh, so he could, for example, map... In a steel, he could map where the carbon atoms were, or the iron atoms, or the tungsten atoms, or whatever. Uh, so it, it would lined up for uh, individual uh, species, but it would produce now a complete map over the, the surface of where that species was. Um, and uh, he, in his original patent in 1975, uh, this was quite visionary. He at least partially foresaw where the whole te technique might go. Uh, because he, what he was normally doing was, was putting a strobe image with just a, a camera behind to capture it. But he recognized that it was possible to connect uh, one or uh, alternatively a, a whole array of individual photomultipliers onto the back of the screen. I should have said this is a fiber optic screen. Uh, so he, he recognized uh, that instead of just using it as a strobe and getting a picture, uh, in principle, you could now get uh, position information and indeed timing information from lots of different places uh, on that screen. Um, so he, the patent says two or more photomultipliers may be used to measure the luminescence simultaneously at more than one location. Um, and by using appropriate optical means such as beam flitters, more than one optical sensing method can be used. Uh, so this uh, is a precursor to what becomes the 3D um, atom probe. And it is sufficiently far forward in concept uh, that it explains why there is no comprehensive patent on, three, on atom probe tomography. Uh, this, this preempts that. Uh, but in those days, the only way that he could have made this work uh, was by putting something like a million miniature photomultipliers in and wiring them all up. And he was at Sandia. Even the resources of Sandia Laboratory were not able to, to do that. So he, he recognized what could be done. Uh, at least to some extent, but wasn't able to carry the thing right the way through. Um, the other development, also from Mueller's lab, but this is the uh, Oxford manifestation of it, 
is what's called an energy compensated um, atom probe. And this does need a, a, a quick mention. Um, the limitation on the straight time of flight atom probe was essentially chromatic aberration. If you, especially if you apply a voltage pulse, uh, the pulse is time varying, uh, it's got echoes, it's got rings, it's got distortions in it. Uh, and so the ions that come off have got a spread of energies. And the spread of energies converts to a spread of flight times, spread of flight times uh, converts to loss of mass resolution. So uh, there is, uh, a, what the solution to this is to put in a bendy flight path. Essentially, this is a toroidal sector lens. You force the ions to swing around uh, a corner and go around to a detector, which is now uh, up here. And what this means is if you have ions with a range of different energies, the low energy ions are easy to deflect, and they take an inside track. The higher energy ions are harder to deflect, and they swing wider. Um, and it's a bit like a Formula One race. Uh, you can, uh, the, the, the vehicle that's going fastest doesn't necessarily get there first, because if it comes into a bend, the fastest vehicle has to take the out, an outside track. A slower vehicle can go through on the inside. If you get this right, it becomes time focusing. Uh, and so the mass resolution can be increased by uh, a factor of about 10. Um, digressing only slightly, when we had a simple one-dimensional tube where the, it was a meter long and the flight tube was about 100 millimeters diameter and had a big lump on the end, at that point, a potential, one potential sponsor was the American Army. And they seemed to like this. It looked like a 100 millimeter cannon. Uh, and they were serious. They never actually did sponsor us seriously, but they, they, they loved it. As soon as we had this one in with a 160 degree bend in it, they just lost it. It was 10 times better performance, but the American Army at this point was just, you know, no, no, no. This, 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 this wasn't going to work for them. Um, right. Uh, so, uh, now the, the panics one is, is, is taking us in the right direction, okay? Uh, now, this is what we, we do, um, what we did we were the first people to succeed in doing it in Oxford. We now have the needle. Um, and uh, for the three-dimensional imaging, what we do is something like what Panis does. We put a large area uh, detector in front of the needle. Uh, so if we, pick any, if we pass any atom off there, uh, then uh, from the time of flight, we can find out what it is. But uh, if we want to know where the atom has come from, we now need a smart detector. We need a detector that not only gives us a flight time signal, but reads out the XY coordinates. Uh, and if we can do that, uh, then uh, if we're prepared to pulse uh, many millions of times in the end uh, and painstakingly pick atoms off from the tip, uh, we can in principle map the, the flight time uh, and the position of arrival of every atom uh, that we catch. Um, and uh, we're limited only by the efficiency of the detector, which I'll come back to later. So in principle, step by step, we can reconstruct uh, the, uh, the 3D form. And um, the original incarnation, well, the, 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 this is now back in the 1980s. Position-sensitive detectors were pretty primitive. Uh, some of you will have come across things called resistive anode encoders. They, they were the first ones. From our point of view, they, they didn't work because they were high impedance. Uh, and the high impedance position sensing circuit didn't work with the very low 50 ohm impedance digital timing and ion detection. So we needed a low impedance uh, uh, position sensing detector. And the one that we used was what's called a wedge and strip anode, or something called a backgammon anode. And it works on the principle of charge division. You have a series of strips which get wider as they go across, uh, a series of tapering wedges, 
uh, and another electrode which fills in uh, the, everything in between. So if you have uh, a signal, an iron hitting over there, the amount of charge that goes into a wedge is small, the amount that goes into uh, the neighboring strip uh, is small. Down here, uh, you would get a large amount on the wedge anode, a large amount on the strip anode, because both the wedge and the strip are large. So by, by measuring the charge on each of the three electrodes, the wedges, the strips, and the, the background, and ratioing them, uh, you can work out the XY coordinate for the atom. Uh, so uh, it, it's a very simple, low impedance uh, detector. Unfortunately, uh, it only works if one iron hits it at a time. If, if multiple ions hit it, it's got serious problems. And what we did uh, in the first instance, uh, we, we built uh, one of the, a, a detector of that kind. We put it onto the, that energy compensated probe that I, I mentioned before. So it was a plug-in, and it sat on a side port in there. Um, and the whole original device cost us exactly 10,000 pounds. Um, and that was money that we had left over from an industrial contract we'd done. We'd, on, the, on the 1D probe, we'd done some work on the Sizewell B nuclear reactor design, uh, and in principle, the CGB paid us to analyze the decomposition of the, the, the rate of decomposition of the steels used in the primary cooling circuit. Uh, and it was work from Oxford that underpinned the safety case and, and enabled a, a, an operating license to be obtained for Sizewell we had to prove that during the, the expected 30-year lifetime of the reactor that the, the primary circuit wasn't going to embrittle significantly. So left over from that, we had 10,000 pounds of slush money. Um, and uh, unallocated money uh, is worth 10 times uh, allocated money. Uh, and that enables us to, to do it. So we, we, we produced the prototype, uh, got the patent, and produced the first half dozen papers uh, with, on money that came from a leftover from an industrial contract and was not an EPSRC grant uh, of any kind. We just did it. Uh, we felt uh, that it was too... Well, I, I'm jumping ahead a bit. We, we thought that putting the proposed... We already had a patent on the principle for, for sequential analysis. We felt it was too risky to put to EPSRC a research proposal or something that we hadn't done and that looked very speculative. We'll do it first prove the principle, then we'll apply for a grant to build a proper one. Uh, so we could go to EPSRC with a, an application cast iron. Uh, we've, we've, we've done it. We've got the papers. We can show it works. Now we want to build it. Uh, we can't fail, and it did. EPSRC threw out. The, the, it, we got in with full documentation. Uh, they junked our research application. At that point, the group nearly fell apart, uh, and it was Chris Grosvenor who rescued us by finding a pot of money from a compound semiconductor uh, uh, a targeted area that enabled us to, uh, to, to uh, continue. Um, now, the, the 3D side, this is just a... If, if one sits and watches field evaporation take place, uh, it's always going to be the atoms around the edge of a plane which are removed first. So what actually happens is you see layer after layer of material dissolving away. That's what you see on the screen. And if you're doing this by a, a pulse evaporation method, then you chip away very, very slowly. You try to arrange the... Every few pulses, one of these atoms comes off and you measure its, uh, its position. Um, and you keep doing this millions and millions of times. Um, and what you do in the computer uh, is that you map sequentially the position of each atom in each layer. And then you go down layer after layer after layer after layer after layer. So in the computer, you have a 3D reconstruction, a real space 3D reconstruction of all the atoms that you've caught. Um, and uh, it's called 
tomographic the, uh, these days because essentially uh, the layers, the atoms peel off layer by layer. So you're, you're, you're doing a, a sub-nanometer um, slicing uh, process. And um, I thought it was appropriate to show some of the early pictures here because they're, they're iconic and they show the sorts of things that, that came out really within a few months of, of, of getting this thing working. Um, one of the classic uh, issues uh, in nuclear reactor technology is the embrittlement of pressure vessel steels by uh, nanoscale uh, clustering of copper. And we were able to get the first ever 3D pictures of uh, copper clusters uh, uh, in uh, an iron uh, matrix. Um, that's interesting. I don't know why it's doing that. Let me come out of that. Um, the... Uh, another thing, a totally different application for copper. Uh, this is linked to John Jakubowicz and Mark Hetherington, who ran the Magnetic Materials Group. It was known if you add copper to alnico magnets, you increase the coercivity, and nobody knew why. They were very complicated, interconnected, multiphase microstructures. And lo and behold, we found that the copper was forming nanoscale non-magnetic particles, which were pinning domain boundaries. Uh, so, you know, what the first, always the first problem we, we had, a, we nailed was in nuclear reactors. Uh, the, the second one we looked at was in a totally different area of magnetic materials, but again gave a definitive uh, answer almost overnight to, to an enigmatic problem. Um, the third one was back to reactors. This is now the primary cooling system uh, of uh, pressurized water reactors. I don't want to worry anybody in this room, uh, but the, 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 the duplex, the, the stainless steels that are used for the vital primary cooling system are duplex, that is, they're a mixture of ferrite and austenite phase. They're strong, they're tough, they're weldable, uh, they're formable. Unfortunately, the ferrite phase is thermodynamically unstable, uh, and it's determined to fall apart. Um, and it tries to break up into chromium-rich and chromium-depleted uh, regions, and these materials can lose 90% of their fracture toughness during aging. Uh, so that was the issue we had already addressed with um, uh, Sizewell, uh, and we did work with a number of groups, both in America and this, in this case with uh, the group in Rouen in France, looking at spinodal decomposition. Here what we've done is uh, we, we're using computer graphics the, the, to analyze a decomposed stainless steel, and in blue we're enclosing regions which are high in chromium, transparent are regions which are low in chromium, and there's another intermetallic phase, a G phase, which is forming in the steel as well. Uh, so the iron chromium uh, the decomposition of these stainless steels had proved almost impossible to study by any other technique uh, because the scattering factors for iron and chromium were so similar by almost other methods. Uh, but in the atom probe, we could resolve these. Um, and uh, here in Oxford and subsequently in France and in the USA, uh, really the definitive work on the, the aging characteristics of these primary uh, reactor seals was, was carried out. Um, this is the, the first of the superalloy uh, pictures. So again, there's a lot, huge amount of work now on superalloys. Um, what you have about here is a gamma-gamma prime interface. Over here to the right is gamma prime. Over there is uh, gamma. And this is a color separation. So we're mapping where all the nickel atoms are, the aluminum atoms, and in this case, uh, rhenium, which is the magic ingredient in Rolls-Royce uh, superalloys. And the, the gamma, this is a, a zero, zero, 001 direction. Uh, and of course, in the ordered gamma prime phase, uh, then successive uh, atom layers uh, in terms of nickel are 100% nickel, 50% nickel, 100% nickel, 50% nickel. And in the 50% layers uh, is where you find the aluminium. 
Uh, and so uh, this, this, again, if, if you superimpose this on that, you, you'll find that there's a nickel-rich layer, then nickel-aluminium, uh, then and so on. So, so you, you, you're able to reconstruct the layer-by-layer -layer, uh, atomic structure of uh, here. And you can also show straight away that the rhenium is not... Uh, basically, uh, you can think of the superalloys as being rather like sort of bricks and held together by cement. Uh, the rhenium is certainly not in the bricks. Uh, the rhenium is basically producing a better cement rather than anything else. So this was information that was hugely valuable to, uh, uh, to Rolls-Royce. Um, also, and contrary to what a lot of recent papers, uh, a lot of recent papers will suggest that the, the laser passing technique and the study of semiconductors is very, very recent and only dates from maybe 2004, 2005. I would like to emphasize that we were doing this by 1990. Uh, we were forced into it kicking and screaming against our will because that was the only way we could get EPSRC money to carry on. Uh, but this is the, 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 the first ever picture of uh, a, a multi-quantum well structure. Uh, in the middle here, there is uh, a gallium indium arsenide quantum well. There are indium phosphide barrier layers between. Uh, this is, the whole scale across here is only uh, about 12 nanometers. Uh, and... Um, even from this rather jumbled picture, I think the, the thing is that it's an MOCVD-grown layer. And I think one of the most obvious take-home messages from this one is that the boundaries are not sharp. Uh, okay, there's a heck of a lot more mixing between the uh, indium and the phosphorus and the arsenic and the gallium uh, than you would like to think. It's sharper in, in uh, MBE, but it came as a bit of a shock to the manufacturers to find out how this was. And we worked with Plessy. Interestingly, we were doing this very exotic 3D atomic imaging we could actually interact with the people in the fabrication plant. Um, and we, we could show differences uh, in the sharpness of the in interfaces depending on how they run the, pl run the plant. Um, and in particular, they were using uh, a kind of, uh, like a, a mixing. Uh, they used something like a glass wool to produce a, a mixing of the gases for each batch. And it turned out that this filter mixing process was actually um, not only mixing the gases for one uh, of these layers, uh, it was remaining there and was therefore messing up the next layer. So if they actually took out the, uh, the mixing device, they got a sharper result than, if they, uh, than with it there. So we, have, we had a direct, so in the nuclear um, industry, in the magnet uh, area, um, and in the semiconductor area, within a year, 18 months, we, we were not only able to produce science, but we were able to uh, you know, directly impact on what was, was going on in, in the industry. Um, the more basic um, science, uh, which I will uh, talk about uh, very uh, quickly, if I can make this work. Let me go around. Right. Um, so this is um, simply a, uh, this is a, a lightweight automotive uh, uh, material. It's a 6,000 series aluminium alloy, aluminium, magnesium, silicon, age hardened to produce rod-like nanoscale precipitates. There's the scale here is only five nanometers. Um, the the Precipitates form on 001, uh, along 001 directions. And if you look carefully, essentially there's three orthogonal sets of, of nanoscale needles uh, here. We've left the aluminium atoms transparent. We're just showing the magnesium and silicon. Um, but the point of showing this is, is to stress the amount of information there is in these 3D reconstructions for, for uh, a system with precipitate particles. I mean, the, the, here you have uh, information about... Uh, the number density of particles, uh, the size of the particles, 
uh, the size distribution of the particles, the orientation of the particles, the composition of the particles, whether there's anything segregated at the particle matrix interface, and also, and it turns out particularly importantly, how much solute is left unprecipitated in the matrix. Uh, so for, for many purposes, for heat treatments, for uh, things like auto-application, is what comes out that matters. Uh, in the nuclear field, uh, then, in fact, it's what has not yet come out which matters. Uh, because if you're processing, for example, a, a reactor pressure vessel and it's been heat-treated uh, and aged and tempered and stress-relieved and heaven knows what else, a certain amount of the residual copper, for example, will have precipitated out. And the mechanical property tests that you do before the, the acceptance test for the, for the uh, RPV uh, takes account of everything that has already happened. Uh, what you want to know is what's going to happen during the next 30 years. Um, and that is determined not by the amount of copper that's already come out or any other solid that's come out. What is going to happen in the next 30 years is going to be predi uh, determined by the how much is still left in solution that is there metastably and might still come out. So the, the, the downside potential uh, for long-term behavior of materials is, is actually governed by what seems to be the most boring bit in here, which is the bit where nothing is happening. Because that is actually the bit where nothing has happened yet, but it might. Okay, that, that's, that's the, uh, uh, the origin. Um, this, I don't have the original photograph of this. So this, this is from uh, a, a national uh, newspaper. It, it's rather poignant. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite photographs. This is the team. This is Alfred Cereza and uh, Terry Godfrey. This is the original POSAP. Uh, this is the point at which we decide that uh, we ought to make this technique available to the scientific community, and we set up a little spin-out company. Uh, it was, had a, just a working name, Kinbrisk. We were going to change it to Intergalactic Mega Enterprises or something, but we, we ended up calling it Oxford Nanoscience in the end. Um, as ever, in Britain, uh, it's incredibly difficult raising uh, money for, uh, uh, sorry, uh, for um, ventures. Um, the government in 1993 had just published one of their wonderful white papers from a parallel universe. Uh, saying how wonderful the support was and was going to be for high technology. And the Independent wanted to find out what really happened at the coalface, and they got in touch with it. The in front page article in The Independent has one of the most memorable starting phrases that I I've ever come across. Two entrepreneurial grandmothers have done more for a British company's exports of high technology equipment than the clearing banks and venture capital and finance houses, dot, dot, dot. And this is perfectly true. Um, we went to the banks and asked for some help to start the company. Uh, the banks would not give us a penny unless we gave them the deeds of our house. Um, and I had an interesting conversation with my wife that night. Um, <laughs> and it was the opposite of what you might expect. Uh, I said, look, you know, we've, we've started with absolutely nothing. Uh, the day I got married, I, my total assets were 26 pounds. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, the house and the, our limited possessions were just about everything that we had. I said, I, 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 we'd worked hard for what little we had, and I didn't see a reason to jeopardize it. And my wife, Josie, bless her heart, said, look, I believe in you and your team. I think you've got the potential and something exciting here. If you want to put the house on the line, go ahead and do it. Um, <laughs> and I said, no. Um, so uh, it was that way around, okay. Uh, we then talked to venture capital people. They not only wanted our house, basically they wanted our kids as security as well. So. Um, but the, then my mother 
and my and Josie's mother, both of whom were pensioners, dug into their precious savings and they bankrolled the startup of the company and the patent fees and the legal fees and got us going. Uh, and they were founding shareholders of this company. They took delight in receiving their modest dividends every year. Uh, and they were an animatedly and enthusiastically involved in the company from that day on until it was eventually sold on. But uh, the, this, anyway, the, the two entrepreneurial grannies, bless their hearts, are both now uh, passed on, but they, they got us going. Uh, there were then many uh, Store, I, I will now go rather quickly through. There are many generations and uh, technology improvements uh, that, that happened in the 3D atom probe area. Um, and we were able to extend it to the applications to things like studies of multi-layer thin films. Um, but uh, we were um, overtaken in technology uh, by uh, work that was... Uh, taken on Tom Kelly, you're sitting here, uh, and David Larson and uh, colleagues in America, really uh, produced um, an, a further step forward, a kind of second revolution, um, which uh, moved the technique forward further and faster. What they did, this looks, uh, this is borrowed from Baptiste uh, Goldhagen. What they did, here's the needle, there's the position sensing detector. What they did, they took an electrode. This is an idea that originated with Nishikawa in Japan. They put an extraction electrode uh, in real space terms incredibly close to that needle, within about 50 microns. Um, and what this did, it did uh, a couple of things. First of all, it enhanced the field, so the whole thing would work with lower voltages. And that meant you could run at much higher repetition rates, hundreds of, uh, uh, in the hundreds of kilohertz range rather than uh, hundreds of hertz. Uh, and secondly, it enabled, uh, the optics enabled a much wider field of view uh, to be studied. Uh, so with this uh, version of the technique, uh, now uh, the field of view uh, became something like 100 nanometers plus. Uh, the iron collection rate could go up to something like, uh, well, it was approaching a million ions a second in the end. Uh, in huge uh, data, uh, data, sorry, a million hours a minute, sorry, uh, uh, typically. Um, and this completely overtook what we were uh, doing in Oxford, though part of our technology got incorporated into it. Um, and so the current generation instruments look like this, and they are genuinely uh, black boxes. <laughs> um, the depth resolution, this is just, a, 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 just an image off one of these machines. This is tungsten, but these are the successive 110 planes. So you can see every single uh, lattice plane. Uh, you can feed this through a Fourier transform and get a diffraction pattern, so you can actually do crystallography uh, on uh, structures of this kind. Um, applications for these instruments are very widespread uh, now. Uh, if I just list some of the things we've done in Oxford in, uh, in the last uh, 10 years, uh, in the metals and alloys, a whole range of stuff on phase transformations, phase stability, solute segregation to dislocations, lots of stuff on irradiation uh, in nuclear reactors and fusion plant, uh, oxidation and corrosion, stress corrosion, cracking studies, thin film studies. Um, the laser probe, using laser pulses instead of voltage pulses means you can work with less conducting materials. So a, a very big emerging area is uh, semiconductor studies, uh, silicon 3.5s, uh, quantum well structures, complete nanoscale electronic devices now uh, have been uh, looked at. Um, and in, in terms of my career, coming full circle, having done my doctorate over in, in chemistry, 
Uh, what we now find uh, is that we can actually begin to look at, uh, at chemistry, at catalysis, uh, catalytic, catalyst surfaces and how they behave and how they react. Uh, so uh, we, we've come full circle around chemistry. Um, in steels alone, uh, the air, and this is just a list of, of steels-related projects done in Oxford. Uh, we've done work on alloy element redistribution in perlites. We've looked at a whole range of uh, aspects of martensite tempering, what happens in the bainite reaction. Uh, I've already talked about aging of stainless steels. Uh, the definitive work on the chemistry of mar aging steels was, was, comes from the atom probe. Uh, t a 12-year project on aging of pressure vessel steels. Uh, these are steels for fusion reactors. Uh, this is the represented the first direct observation of a cultural atmosphere. Um, we've looked at nitrogen effects in steels uh, and really very complicated things like stress corrosion cracking now. Um, I will uh, skip. Well, I, I, I've outlined what we're doing. I said, I, and I showed the pioneering applications. I think the one I wanted to uh, draw attention to, uh, I showed in an early slide, if you remember, a spiral associated with the dislocation. That was just an image. Well, um, this is the end of uh, a spiral uh, where a dislocation emerges in an iron carbon alloy. And if we map the carbon uh, around there, then near the end of that uh, spiral, and for several nanometers around it, uh, there are a lot of carbon atoms. If we do the control experiment and we find an equivalent region where there isn't a dislocation spiral, there are many, many fewer uh, carbon atoms. Uh, so this was uh, the first ever uh, observation that, that carbon atoms were clustered at a, a dislocation. It is a cultural atmosphere. Um, and the fact that it's dispersed is critical because the cultural Bilby theory says that the, the main interaction between the, the carbon atoms and the dislocation is an elastic interaction. Uh, and the elastic field, of course, of a dislocation is, is dispersed over a substantial area. It's not localized in the core alone. Uh, so the, the observation of a cloud of carbon atoms stretching out several nanometers from that dislocation core uh, is a complete uh, uh, confirmation of, of the cultural Bilby model. The student involved, Jim Wilde, uh, sent a copy of the paper about this to Alan Cottrell in Cambridge, who was long retired. Cottrell is the most was the most delightful and courteous and charming of men. Uh, within days, uh, the student got a handwritten letter back from uh, Alan Cottrell uh, saying how delighted he was, he, Alan Cottrell was, to have lived long enough to see his theory verified uh, and congratulating the student. And the student, of course, had this framed and hung on his uh, office wall. But it was a, a lovely touch from, uh, from, 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 from Cottrell. Um, I will, uh, I'm going to, I, I've indicated most of the other uh, things. Uh, the one thing I would mention um, in terms of grain boundary segregation effects, this is, this is now, this is actually a failed experiment because we were putting palladium in to improve uh, segregation resistance and we ended up with precipitates. But the sort of thing that we, we one's now able to do with these local electrode atom probes, that is a run down a grain boundary in a stainless steel. There are 200 million atoms collected in one night. Okay. Now, when we were working with a 1D atom probe, if you got a million atoms in three years, you had enough for a thesis. Okay. Uh, now, this is 200 million in a night. That's, 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 that's where you are. Um, the other thing, I, uh, this is hot from the press. This is just from last week uh, from uh, Alan Zhu in our group. Uh, we are moving on from fission reactors to fusion reactors. Now, this is a serious challenge. We're trying to keep a little bit of the sun in a bottle down here on Earth. Okay? And it's not only hot, it's spitting out neutrons and it's doing heaven knows what else all, uh, at, at the same time. 
So uh, almost the only uh, candidate material for the most e extreme situation is, is tungsten. Uh, you can ductilize tungsten a little bit by adding uh, rhenium. But the question then arises, what's going to happen to something like a tungsten-rhenium alloy when it's exposed in a fusion reactor? It's going to be irradiated. Uh, it's 14 MeV uh, neutrons. Uh, and those neutrons uh, produce not just irradiation damage, they produce transmutation as well. So you start with tungsten-rhenium, and before long, you've got a tungsten-rhenium-osmium alloy. Uh, and those of you who've ever studied chemistry at university level will know that osmium on the whole is bad news. It's a highly toxic and volatile, but it's not, it, it, it is user unfriendly. Um, so we have to understand not only how tungsten-rhenium ages, but also how tungsten-rhenium-osmium uh, uh, behaves. And in, just in the last few weeks, it's, it's become clear uh, that osmium has a major effect in terms of what goes on. If I can attempt to illustrate this, um, the... Uh, the, we're, irradi we're doing self-iron irradiation um, either at 573K or 773K. Uh, this is uh, tungsten-rhenium irradiated uh, to multiple displacements per atom at 573, and it produces rhenium uh, clusters. Uh, if you irradiate at 773, you, again, you get clustering, but they're, large, they're coarser uh, clusters. Um, if you go to the ternary alloy and do it under the same conditions, uh, then in the binary you've got a lot of rhenium clustering. In the ternary, the rhenium clustering is suppressed. Uh, and in both temperatures, much less rhenium clustering. But uh, what you're getting instead are osmium clusters. Um, so the, the, the transmutation products are actually having a spectacular effect on the, the long-term aging behavior of that material. They're, they're changing the rules of the game completely. Um, so the, the, it is actually, what this shows immediately is that you cannot predict the long-term behavior of fusion materials just from the starting composition, however hard you hit it. Uh, you have to allow for transmutation. This, this has a big effect on, on the kinetics. So this is um, going to, uh, shall we say, delay some of the, uh, the fusion uh, material for a while. Uh, um, semiconductor work I've already indicated briefly. I'll just mention um, that... Uh, one of the things we can look at are, are quantum dots uh, for laser-type uh, applications. Uh, according to the, the, the uh, optoelectronic textbooks, all quantum dots should be the same, and they should all behave, march in military precision and behave the same. We, uh, in practice, in real life, all quantum dots are different. We've never found two the same. Okay? Uh, they're... they're, they're, they're uh, overall size, their thickness, their outline shape, their profile, the, the, dense, the, the distribution of alloy elements with, uh, within them varies totally from one dot to an, another. The only mystery to us is how the heck these things work at all, because uh, according to us they shouldn't. But the, there's a whole area of work there. Um, and the other thing, again, I'm just going to show very quickly, uh, very productive work with Colin Humphreys, Rachel Oliver, and students in Cambridge, uh, on nitride uh, semiconductors. I mean, this, sorry, there's only a black and white picture, but this is now looking, just showing the indium atoms in black and aluminium atoms uh, in grey. Uh, we can go right through a complete nano uh, structure of an LED, analyse every layer, look at the sharpness or otherwise of the interface and see whether there's clustering in any of the layers, look at the interface topography. Uh, so as, uh, n as electronic devices become smaller scale, uh, then other 
techniques become much, much more difficult to use. Um, and really, a, a, an absolute growth point for our atom probe now is, is uh, the study of uh, nanoelectronic devices. And just emerging within this is the study of the distribution of individual dopant uh, atoms. Uh, at the point when you've got the device down below 20 nanometers, uh, again, the textbook picture of a smeared out distribution of dopants is no longer valid or relevant. You need to know where every single one of those damn dopant atoms is. Um, and this is probably the only way that it's, it can be done on a, a sensible uh, way. Um, again, just mentioning as I go through, Paul Baggett has done some superb pioneering work on uh, alloy catalysts. I showed a perfect hemispherical surface before. As soon as you heat it, uh, you get uh, restructuring and faceting, thermal reorganization, um, and you get uh, chemical changes at the surface. And if you're really clever, uh, as Paul is, uh, then round an individual atom plane, you can actually map where adsorbate atoms or molecules have, have stuck around the round plane edges. So a whole area for catalyst work is possible. Um, and the most, a lot of the most exotic uh, catalysts now are what are called core shell nanoparticles. So there's one kind of element in the center, another around the edge. And uh, at this point, you can begin to bend the rules in the periodic table. You're not limited to 96 elements anymore. Uh, because in a core shell structure, uh, this has got a silver core, it's got a palladium uh, outer layer, uh, you can now fractionally drain electrons from the outer atoms. So you can change the electronic nature of the uh, palladium without actually switching it into being another atom species. So the, these core shell particles open up uh, completely new horizons in designing catalysts and again are almost impossible to study really accurately by uh, conventional techniques. Uh, and the, the uh, Tong Li in our, in our lab has produced the first ever really nice core shell nanoparticle pictures. Um, finishing, nearly finished. Um, limitations and prospects in alphabetical order. Uh, I, I've accentuated the positive in this lecture, which I think is the right thing to do. Um, the things, the shopping list and things we have to do, first of all, uh, I've shown really uniform hemispherical surfaces uh, and in real life if, it, if it's multi-phase or if there are grain boundaries present then the curvature is not totally uniform. So we, we, the trajectories of ions have aberrations when the curvature is not uniform and a lot of work is going on to try and uh, sort out uh, the, the details there. Um, another problem is that we are really a bit in the Wild West. We're almost in cowboy country as far as uh, data processing and analysis is, goes on. Everybody does it their own way. Um, and the result, no two groups will necessarily get exactly the same answer from analyzing the same data set because they've got different software algorithms and different ways of interpreting. We need much better quality control and benchmarking and standardization in the field. Alarmingly, we've lost competition. We had several, two or three companies fighting each other. We now have a monopoly situation, um, and that's unhealthy from the researcher's point of view. So I, I think there needs to be competition in the field. Um, especially with the laser technique, we've got to be extremely careful to avoid surface diffusion, because that will foul up the analysis, and that is being neglected by some groups. Um, the efficiency of the iron detectors, these multi-channel plates, with all the complications of the modern equipment, the we only get about just under 40% of the ions recorded. And an absolute major goal is to push that up. Um, also, in our early instruments, we had field eye microscopy built in with the atom probe. Um, and we 
the modern instruments really have lost the imaging facility. They're, they're very good on analysis, but they don't do good imaging. Uh, and what we're seeing is a need to revive really accurate field arm microscopy to complement the analysis, and that's got to come back in. Uh, we need, there's such an expansion in the field, we need more students. Uh, one of the frontiers is certainly hydrogen analysis, that's the most elusive of all the elements. Uh, and uh, we also need to move into more insulating materials that are harder to conduct. So we've, we've got a lot of things still to do, but we've made um, a great deal of progress. Um, I will zoom down, this is very quick. Lots of the developments and lots of the applications were Oxford firsts. Okay, so we, we, we've been very much in the lead of this, and I was privileged to have a whole succession of incredibly talented people uh, working with me um, over the years. Um, we produced in Oxford something over 400 publications in this area. We had various awards and prizes and medals and honours to the team, um, which uh, reflected the, the, the work that we'd done. Um, here's one to, for the album. This is the Prince of Wales Award for Innovation, and you do indeed get to see and shake hands with the Prince of Wales. So there he is with Alfred uh, and Terry and with Chris and uh, Josie. Um, and there's one world record that we didn't want, um, sadly, <laughs> uh, which brings us back to funding. And this is where I'm going to uh, stop uh, completely. The, the, as of about 2004, 2005, we did actually manage to get a major grant from EPSRC to set to, for the first stage, to set up a national out-of-program facility. We didn't just want to do it ourselves. We wanted to, to be, make it available uh, to anybody from UK universities. So we got a one and a half million pound grant to get a new generation instrument and appoint somebody to provide um, a service. Now, three years down the line, uh, EPSRC or or uh, arrange a review of what they call these mid-range facilities. These are facilities embedded in universities that are supposed to be more widely available. They, they do a beauty contest and they look at uh, what's around and they invite us to uh, submit our next stage plans uh, for in in conclusion in that review. Um, and they, there are, they, do, they come up with a, 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 a triple ranking. There are facilities, a few, one or two facilities they're going to pursue straight away, some they go through the next financial year, and the some that they say they're going to wait for the outcome of the next government spending review, which was actually later in 2009. And they say, we'll let you know whether or not you can go ahead with your atom probe uh, facility um, when the results come out. Uh, well, this is taken from last week from the EPSRC website. We are now five years and one month on from when we submitted that application. We still do not have a decision from EPSRC about whether we can continue to develop this as a national facility. I, this, I have never in my entire career uh, met anybody or heard of anybody in any branch of science in any country anywhere in the world who's had to wait more than five years for the outcome of a research grant application. Um, during this time, the number of atom probe systems in the world has gone from roughly uh, a dozen to over 60. Uh, there are multiple systems in Germany, Japan, heaven knows what place. In England, we are still stuck on one. Uh, I, I can only describe this as somewhere between outrageous, disgraceful, scandalous, and uh, uh, a source of grief. If anybody in this room has any idea of how to communicate constructively 
or enter into dialogue with the EPSRC and actually get them to take a decision about where we go next with the facility, I'd love to know. Uh, we have grants for applications. We have not been able to keep the facility up to date uh, or to move it ahead in the way that we would like, and we have faced with a totally intractable situation here. So, uh, you know, here is the story of, you know, many joys, many achievements, um, and an underlying frustration with our own agency, which I can only describe as indescribable. <laughs> at, that, uh, at that point, I will uh, stop, and I've got over my hour, but thank you very much indeed.